I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I'm the Nancy and Bob Magoon CEO and Director here at the Aspen Art Museum. And I want to thank you for joining us tonight for the artist talk by Annika Yee. It's presented as part of the Questrom lecture series and made possible by the Questrom Education Fund. We are providing Aspen, sorry, American Sign Language Interpretation thanks to the Aspen Camp for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. Um, tonight, I'm going to invite Annika to give a talk that she has prepared. Then she and I will have a brief conversation, and then we will open it up for questions. So um, we're doing sort of a, a set change. So Annika's going to stand during her talk, and then we'll sit during the conversation. So a little bit of an introduction to Annika and her work. She was born in Seoul, South Korea, and she currently lives and works in New York. She was the recipient of the 2016 Hugo, Hugo Boss Prize, and her work has been the subject of solo exhibitions at the Guggenheim Museum in New York, the Friedrichianium, which I never say exactly right, but I always try, in Kassel, Germany, uh, the Kunsthalle in Basel, the Liszt Visual Arts Center, MIT, and the Cleveland Museum of Art. She will be doing a solo exhibition here with us at the Aspen Art Museum, which opens in December of 2019. She is driven by self-directed study of science, and her work uses ephemeral, unconventional materials to engage the senses of the human body, opening the potential to reconfigure biological, political, and personal perceptions, sent often factors in her practice and installations. And I have been a fangirl of her work for a long time, and I'm so happy to be getting to have her speak to you today and to get to work on an exhibition with her. So, Annika. Thank you for the uh, invitation, uh, Heidi, to be here today. This is my first time in Aspen, so I'm trying to climatize <laughs> a little bit. Um, but today, I wanted to do something new and different. Uh, rather than talk about the work that I have made, I thought it would be really interesting uh, since 2018 is a year that I'm using to do some very rigorous uh, research and development. And I thought this was a nice opportunity to talk about my sort of conceptual process and allow you to have a little access into my sort of um, thinking and uh, a lot of the ideas that I'm working through in terms of um, the developments for my work. And so, uh, for the past several years, I have attempted to examine and articulate the imperfect categorization of the natural, synthetic, and transnatural, highlighting how these categories mutate and dissolve into one another. While humans have always manipulated their environment through agriculture and other means, they have been manipulated in turn, disturbing ideas of human agency and authorship. Discoveries related to genetic engineering and the microbiome have increased our biological literacy, yet they have also emphasized the co-subjectivity and essential mutability of life. Through my practice, I have looked at the ways that synthetic biology in particular allows us to collapse and merge taxonomies, dismantling previously accepted notions of species and evolution. 
As our understanding of life is dramatically reshuffled, artists have a vital role to play in imagining what life is and what it could be. In my own work, I acknowledge co-subjectivity through my practice of biofiction, which is a term my colleague Carolyn Jones at MIT has coined to refer to my methodology of constructing narratives through the biological and biographical. So in other words, biofiction is a way to fuse the written history of life with the study of life. So this particular biofictional verve has led me to some new ideas that I want to talk about today. My past explorations have focused on the biota as a whole, and I have often preferred to avoid direct reference to the human. However, the more I consider the issues of our time, the more frequently I encounter the human as somewhat of a culprit. Humans are responsible for many of the rapid and deleterious biological and environmental changes unfolding in the current epoch. Unable to prevent the human from continually resurfacing as a troubling figure in my work, I have finally decided to surrender and confront the evolutionary role of the human species directly. The Homo sapien is in its late evolutionary stage, and I believe it is critical to anticipate or imagine a more biodiverse speciation, exceeding the singular mode which has prevailed for the past 12,000 years. This speciation will be greatly affected by intersections of the biological and digital realms, particularly synthetic biology and artificial intelligence, as they serve to decenter the human, disrupting traditional notions of autonomy and individual subjectivity. The boundaries delineating both the individual organism and the individual species are becoming less trustworthy, and previous mo models of species and evolution are no longer viable. Will we soon be able to control and sculpt evolution as a medium, rendering natural selection an obsolete force? The clearly branching Darwinian model of evolution falls short as we observe species that melt into one another, sharing genes freely and promiscuously. What part will the human play in this process before it is completely dissolved as well? As living and machinic beings liquefy into a continua with no time or place of origin, what greater ecology has yet to form? Biological data will play a pivotal role in this process. Oh, sorry about that. Looking to the past as a tool for future speculation, I'm intrigued by the multiplicity of humans that existed during prehistoric times. At this point, the human constituted a genetically varied family of related species, rather than the genetically homogeneous singularity we are familiar with today. While it is only in the last 12,000 years that Homo sapiens has existed apart from its early relatives, Homo sapiens has historically viewed itself as an exceptional being, separate and unique from other species. How has this perceived isolation affected the evolutionary trajectory of the human and its own understanding of itself and its environment? Recent discoveries in the field of microbiology have revealed that the human, despite illusions of separateness, is in fact inextricably enmeshed in its microbial environment, 
a metaorganism living in delicate symbiotic balance with thousands of other microscopic creatures. I'd like to explore how changing conceptions of the human species and speciation in general vis-a-vis -vis an exit from culture might lead to a multiplicity of human species identities. data will play a pivotal role in this process. As genetic information is a large facet of the obsessive collection and commodification of data we are witnessing. As genetic information is becoming an indispensable economic resource, populations that are isolated and genetically distinct, especially indigenous populations, are vulnerable to new forms of genetic fetishization and biocolonialism. Conversely, privileged populations of the elite and wealthy have greater access to stores of genetic data and medical technologies, positioning them to optimize their health as well as augment their physical and mental capacities. Advanced medical technologies are now less about healing than about achieving perfection. Genetic technologies will even allow us to bring back extinct organisms, or at least aspects of them incorporating them into our ecosystems and potentially into our own bodies via genetic engineering. De-extinction science further disrupts ideas of evolution as a discrete process, forcing the question of which species, including extinct humans, should be brought back and why. As contemporary biotechnology and AI bring more sophisticated methods for re-engineering human minds and bodies, the concept of the unified human species and its corresponding historical narratives fracture and mutate. To what extent would a human population need to alter their DNA or technologically augment their bodies and intellects to be considered a different species? What, if anything, exists for the human beyond its own obsolescence? Once we have the capacity to re-engineer our bodies and minds, there's no way to anticipate what we might become and what our experience will be. I wish to imagine who and what might constitute this we, and how new ways of being human will fragment, clash, and pro proliferate in abundance. Humans may find themselves altered by their own engineering or in response to extreme climates, not necessarily limited to the terrestrial. Some may wish to meld their own DNA with that of ancient human lineages, while others abandon the human altogether in favor of animal, plant, or machine hybrids. Sapiens, as we understand it, seems poised on the precipice of an extinction one that occurs via mutation into other-than-human aspirational beings. As automated life becomes more pervasive, I'm particularly interested in the potential for sensorium of the machine, drawing from my previous explorations of how sensory experiences can allow for a different understanding of perception and consciousness. While biologists and computer scientists alike rush to simulate and synthesize life, I am concerned with the risk of overlooking many of the minute and exquisitely complex sensual qualities of organic life. I wonder if life is totally digitizable, 
or if there will always be some element that slips away. Can digitization become a natural part of evolution? Is there a way to incorporate complex central processing into the digital realm? Or does the rise of the machine signify the end of smell? Can a machine smell? And can the digital have its own smell? While smell is our most ancient sense, present even in bacteria and single-celled organisms, it is the least understood and may prove the most difficult to replicate. What use does a machine without any natural predators or prey have for smell? Can virtual arenas for smell exist? What might a simulated olfactory landscape look like? Our current explorations in AI lack the emotional, chemical, and sensual sophistication of human intelligence. Yet anxieties of AI networks surpassing and replacing the human have already become prevalent. As the relationship between humans and machines evolve, we should resist anthropomorphizing machines or inversely mechanizing humans, allowing instead for unexpected configurations of organic-machinic hybrids. I'm intrigued by the idea that certain facets of intelligence depend on sensual embodiment. What might be lost when intelligence is decoupled from the body? In other words, what is the sensorial ecology of intelligence? As embodied humans, we understand meaning through our sensorium. The word lavender, for instance, it is not only a definition, but makes meaning in connection to its color, its fragrance, and the feel of its petals. These, in turn, are related to memories and associations with similar sensations. How does an intelligence that cannot smell or cannot touch understand lavender? Institutions like the Manel Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia are currently working to develop an electronic nose that can detect odors from cancer and also an olfactometer that can digitize scents. Yet we are far from understanding how scent molecules are processed and mapped into meaning and memories in the brain. Much work is left to be done in this area, as machine olfaction is a nascent field and largely overlooked due to bias in how scientists approach our senses. In my current projects, I'm proposing machine hybrids infused with sensory intelligence, using sensory experience both sculpturally and linguistically to tap into memory, intangibility, synesthesia, and presence through absence. How might sensory experience differ for a networked intelligence whose sensory apparatus is spread on a global scale? I'm also curious about what comprises the microbiome of a machine and how this microbiome might be manipulated and expanded upon. Isn't a machine's microbiome a metaphor for coding? What forms of life might live on or inside of a machine and in the lines of its software? How might the organic creep into and contaminate the machinic by performing the intrinsic truth that machines are a part of a larger ecology and are not an end to themselves? 
In previous centuries, belief in individualism made intuitive sense, as there were no external algorithms that could monitor living systems effectively. One could see themselves as the ultimate authority of one's own experience, and therefore have a sense of personal autonomy. Additionally, the production of sub subjectivity has been the primary work of capitalism, perhaps the essential work. While capitalist subjectivities allow the establishment of respective hierarchies, lived reality is actually a mesh of biochemical and electronic algorithms without clear borders or finite individual hubs. As labor becomes increasingly automated, an individual's personal information, including his or her materiality, may become the most valuable commodity they have to offer. Organisms are assemblages of complex relational processes and patterns, lacking a single inner voice or a single self. The pattern process that constitute the human are not free, but shaped by genes and environmental pressures, and take decisions either deterministically or randomly. In other words, living systems are relatively predictable an intimate knowledge of a living system could potentially be used to man manipulate or control it completely. A networked intelligence could theoretically know one better than oneself, monitoring each of the systems that comprise the body and brain to know exactly who an individual is, how it feels, and what it wants. While I maintain grave concerns over the potential ethical pitfalls, I'm fascinated by the idea that 21st century technology may eventually enable external algorithms to hack living systems. These algorithms will serve as a foil to individualist ideology and authority, could potentially shift from individual humans to networked algorithms. At this point, I believe that human beings will be forced to confront the illusion of autonomy and instead become accustomed to seeing themselves as a collection of biochemical mechanisms, constantly monitored and guided by a network of external systems. How will completely networked existence and lack of autonomy affect decision-making, legislation, and adjudication on a collective level? How much trust will be placed in systems too large for an individual human to perceive? While many of these ideas may be unsettling and even disturbing, we should keep in mind that apocalyptic prophecies have always come into vogue alongside scientific and technological paradigm shifts. In short, people have been saying that it's the end of the world since the beginning of the world. This sentiment is nothing new. It is not my intention to forecast a dystopic future, and the topics of this talk come more from direct observation rather than purely pessimistic speculation. We should resist the rising tide of pessimism that tempts us during shifts such as these, and choose instead to face these issues in a straightforward and sober manner. There is still much room for curiosity, adaptation, and invention. I want to present my ideas and findings to my community so that we may enable a wider conversation and prevent any developments from becoming prematurely locked in.
Throughout human history, it has been very difficult to predict what will happen in the future. We were unable to see where the developments would take us. We would need to be broader in our thought. This is not about the future exclusively, but about what we can see now and what we know shapes the future, which is the present. The transformation of the decentered human is a collective project that requires a wider and more rigorous conversation. We should feel a collective interest and responsibility about how we are evolving or how we may be abandoning evolution altogether. Thank you. So if you guys know me at all, you know that I like things that I don't understand. So that's probably the way to um, introduce the, the conversation. So um, also, one of the things that I was thinking about as we, uh, let's just come a little closer here, as we were listening. And do we have a second microphone? Are we going to share this one? OK. Uh, if you speak a second or third language, not that well, like I do. Um, sometimes when someone starts speaking really fast um, in the other language, for me, I have like a moment of panic. Um, and then when I sort of relax into it, then I realize like, oh, I do understand actually what's being said. So um, I thought it was really interesting to listen to your presentation. And I actually read it before. Um, so maybe I had a little kind of advance. Uh, but what I liked a lot was um, your generosity in sharing what goes into you making your work um, and what you think about, and some of the larger uh, moral and ethical issues that you're considering as part of your work. So the other night, we had a program here. It was actually a sound bath. And um, uh, Rabe Mehta was here, and, and I asked him about rituals that he had. and. He said that he thinks his primary ritual is actually the ritual of curiosity. And I was really taken by that because all my rituals are really practical ones, like taking a bath every night before I go to sleep. So um, I wanted to start off by asking you about curiosity and um, how you actively uh, pr pursue curiosity in your practice. Um, I think that I've, I have always maintained that I am an artist who exists in the world, who is interacting with the world. Um, I'm not in some isolated uh, mythical vacuum where these ideas just come from somewhere else. I think I respond to the world, and I am a part of the ecosystem. So. Uh, being a part of that ecosystem, um, the curiosity is is limitless. I mean, it, it is uh, very very much being uh, almost kind of biochemically driven uh, by all the stimulation and the concerns around around me. Um, I do feel a sense of urgency, which is why I gave the talk that I gave just now. It's kind of a call to action, somewhat. <laughs> so the urgency that you feel, um, if you could pinpoint it into like one elevator pitch, like what is the urgency? I think I think we are we, we're we're entering into uh, or transitioning a phase where 
perhaps the Homo sapien is 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 evolving out of this speciation, and we're going into a different direction. Um, and what's at stake is well. One of the things is evolution. I'm thinking about the dismantling of evolution, um, especially when you have synthetic biologists who can resurrect uh, or potentially resurrect, you know, extinct species like the Neanderthal or the woolly mammoth, or that you can actually, um, and then you have, uh, you know, technology in, um, you know, artificial intelligence that are creating um, machines that know us better than ourselves. So uh, I think that those are very um, important, um, urgent issues that I'm thinking about. So are you, are you worried about who controls that technology and or what it's used for? I'm not worried about the control. I'm concerned about how much that we have as a, as a uh, collective uh, species need to talk about the the technologies that are on the horizon and that are also being implemented right now because once the human is cloned or once we have um, you know artificial human level intelligence it's too late to actually start worrying about driverless cars and you know and you know legislation and human rights what you know and what that means for human rights once we get to a much more advanced level of uh, artificial intelligence for example so we've talked about this before but what what role do you think artists can play and what role do you feel compelled to play yourself i think that artists should very much uh, you know, get involved in the sort of technological realm, in the scientific realm. Um, I think that, you know, uh, in my experience, you know, the artist hasn't really been um, all that well considered or welcome into the scientific, you know, community. Um, and, you know, there seems to be this sort of uh, I don't know, almost like frivolous connotation that artists are, you know, like in this dream world and the scientists and the technologists have their very serious work to do and that, that there's this kind of, uh, you know, division. And I think that artists should uh, try to have these kinds of, um, you know, multidisciplinary uh, relationships and be, have a seat at the table and be a part of the conversation around the important decisions around civilization. So I talked a little bit about the idea of um, liking things that I don't understand. And I think kind of that goes hand in hand with the notion of discomfort, right? Because discomfort is an important element in learning and growth. And that's something that really is very present in your work, that idea of discomfort. Um, can you talk about where you find discomfort in your process? Um, it's never not. <laughs> it's never not uncomfortable. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a very, uh, you know, it, it's a very visceral feeling. Um, it's an embodied feeling. It's a psychic feeling. Um, I think that I've never felt comfortable about any of it, anything. And if I do feel comfortable, I think that I will probably end up sabotaging it and doing something to, um, you know, um, uh, make myself feel uncomfortable. And it's not some sort of, you know, um, um, sort of like, 
a persecution or persecution complex that I have, although I probably have a little bit of that. But um, I think it's just that um, there's there's a lot to explore, and and I think that the discomfort really just comes from um, wanting things to be different. Um, so in your talk, you you talked a little bit about isolation and um, and how it's affected humans and our understanding of self. I mean, I'm sort of hoping I know the answer to this question, but do you believe that art can offer integration? A, a way out of isolation? Um, I would have to respond to that in two ways, uh, because humans have been definitely isolated from a lot of other organisms, even though Biologically speaking, it's impossible for us to be isolated since we are comprised of other organisms. So the notion of an individual is uh, just incorrect. We're more individuals, right? Um, but in terms of art being able to allow us to be more integrated, um, I think it's possible. But then I start to think about how can art allow us to be more integrated with other species? like um, other animals and, you know, do animals care about art? Absolutely not, probably not, <laughs> you know, um, but it might enable us to sort of be, uh, you know, sort of more integrated with each other so that we, when we do, uh, you know, sort of interface and think about and relate with other, other beings and other species, um, hopefully it wouldn't be so, so divided. I'm thinking about that idea about whether animals like art and the fact that you just dismissed it kind of like out of hand. And, and I was thinking about uh, I mean, kind of dumb things like every once in a while a red fox like climbs through the screen and you know, we catch them on camera like walking around up here and you know, and so we like to think they're, you know, like looking at the art or um, you know, and um, and I actually have, you know, pictures of um, birds here, like looking through the windows, and you know, and maybe they're looking at their own reflection or whatever. But um, maybe, you know, part of that idea of the increased knowledge of consciousness um, allows for uh, previously made assumptions to expand like that. But you know, I'm an optimist. <laughs> uh, I. I I mean, I don't know. I, I think like, I think that definitely I believe in, you know, multiple forms of consciousness, um, you know, and maybe I, I dismiss animals in relating to art because I also think about, well, do machines want art? Do they have any desire for it? And I would think initially no, but then, um, but then I think about how machines are also a part of a larger ecology and that they're not an end to themselves and that they too have to adapt. And so that also is a kind of a hopeful signifier that you know that evolution isn't completely lost altogether. Uh, but in terms of um, you know like animal, I don't know, maybe the animal and machine actually can can hybridize into something something else. That's what I'm thinking about, too. Well, so, I mean, we make the machines, right? So I think that goes back to the idea of what role 
artists can play. Because if you have people who are programming that don't care about art, then the probability that the machines will not care about art is very high. Um, but, um, and maybe here's my optimism, but it goes back to intention. If you have the people who are programming the machines who do care about art, then the probability is higher than the machines will too. I think, I think you're right. And I think that's why um, you know, it's really important for us to have this conversation because in my research and my interactions with engineers, AI engineers, and, and different kinds of you know, um, tech technologists, there doesn't seem to be a lot of consideration for that. And that you know, the most often, uh, the most common response is, well, that's not really my job to you know, program you know, an art concerned software or something like that, and then artists can just sort of, you know, insist on that or, or design the software with the engineers. Yeah. Um, although engineers, AI engineers, are notoriously difficult to work with, so. Yeah, but I like that, you know. I mean, and I mean, I think a lot of people wake up every day wondering, you know, how do I make a difference? Like, what can I actually do? And, um, and these are some kind of tangible uh, opportunities. So. So science, at the end of an experiment or um, a process or a practice, there's often a conclusion and there's an answer, right? At the end of the art process, there are often more questions, yeah. right? So um, where do you find your work in between those two different um, practices and processes and, and um, both for yourself and what is your hope for the viewer? Well, you know, I have said before that artists and scientists work very similarly. We work with a lot of punishing failure, uh, whereas maybe our objectives are a little bit different, where a scientist will start out with a hypothesis and will work diagnostically to try to prove that hypothesis, perhaps for you know, her entire career, which you know, might be you know, to, um, for like 50 years or so, whereas an artist, uh, Maybe, maybe at the end of her long, lifelong career, we'll maybe find out what her hypothesis was or not, and not even ever know. But we do have very similar practice, and there's, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, experimentation and failure. Um, in terms of, uh, um, what was the last part of your question? Do you want? I'm, For the viewer, questions or answers at the end? I think always questions, always, always questions. And once I make the work and I put it out in the world, I don't really have a whole lot that I can really try to control or try to govern and dictate how the work should be experienced. I put it out there, and um, it's really about the work and the agency of the work, and, and um, you know, it's very open to interpretation. So you talked about the senses, and you, in your talk, posed a question about uh, this idea of smell and whether machines could smell and how they could smell and, and other senses and if they could touch and how they could touch. Um, and your work really, um, you often incorporate scent. And, um, and people were asking some questions like, is that your work or is that not your work? And these are um, mostly images not of your work, but some images of your work. Uh, so can you talk about why you're interested in using and incorporating non-traditional 
um, senses into your work? Yes. Uh, well, I just want to say uh, uh, part of the reason why I'm interested in if machines can smell is that, uh, you know, for humans like us, um, evolutionarily speaking, we developed a sense of smell in order to survive so that we could smell if something was poisonous to ingest or if there was a fire, uh, you know, a uh, hundred feet away or something like that. So uh, not needing that evolutionary survival skill, machines, will they have a, a, a need for smell? And, and I think that it would be uh, a tremendous loss if we actually eliminated that sense on on machines. Um, but uh, the reason why I think I've, I've been very uh, exploring the other senses like the sense of smell, olfaction, and the haptic uh, perhaps is because I, I mean for a number of reasons I, I've been uh, deeply interested in how our perceptions are conditioned by society, that they're not just a given. Uh, for example, you know, um, you have like your sense of vision, your, you know, your ocularity um, that has been conditioned and associated and attributed uh, to knowledge, discovery. Um, you know, when we started to evolve and got up off the ground, you know, uh, we started privileging sight over smell because when we were on all fours we were sniffing the ground and that guided us um, and so that ocularity that vision uh, became uh, synonymous with the masculine for example uh, whereas olfaction is still attributed to this very mysterious inscrutable uh, almost purely subjective realm that we can't truly understand and so has also been attributed to that which is the feminine which is inaccurate and untrue but we have designated and conditioned um, these uh, perceptions and so um, for me it's it's about uh, sort of unpacking you know the conditioning around our biological uh, you know, senses and how it relates to uh, society and, and politics and, um, uh, yeah. So if someone asked you to describe what your work looks like, what would you say? That's a good question. I've, <laughs> I've never thought about that. Um, I, I would say that, oh, I'm a little stumped. I would say that you'd probably smell it before you saw it. Um, but um, I, yeah, I, always, I often feel like there's not much to look at with my work. <laughs> and I always maintain I'm not a visual person. I don't like looking so much. And I think that that's also a personal uh, sort of, uh, you know, motivation for also, um, you know, pushing forward the, the olfaction, for example. But I don't know what, what what my work would look like. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe that's better, something that you could do. <laughs> so when I think about what your work looks like, I often think about um, interestingly describing it based on how I think it would feel. So I often think about your work as having sort of um, like a stickiness to it or like even a sliminess. Um, or something that feels like it was previously uh, like liquid and is now solid. 
Um, so for me, your work often has a look to it that feels like it's kind of like caught in a moment in time, um, like kind of mid-transformation. So uh, it's often kind of monochromatic, but it's not consistent in its color. And, um, and for me, it often feels like something is also caught in it. Like or a, a process of entropy that it's it's just changing and it's never quite the same from minute to minute or something, and it's quite viscous yeah. often, um, very textural. Yeah. So I'm going to open it up for questions in just a second, but I want to ask you about your um, I don't even know if I should call it a perfume project, but I kind of want to call it that. Uh, so next year I'm launching my first fragrance line and um, it's called Biography and it's based on remarkable women in history and uh, it's inspired by, uh, well there's three fragrances and the first is inspired by the founder and leader of the Japanese Red Army, uh, Fusako Shigenobu. She was in exile in Lebanon for 20 years and um, the second fragrance is inspired by the second female pharaoh of ancient Egypt, Hatshepsut. Perhaps you've maybe visited her uh, tomb site. And, um, and the third uh, fragrance is based on an AI entity. So that's coming next year. Isn't that cool? Just that idea. <laughs> like, who thinks of that, right? So um, questions. Yeah, Paul. So just to repeat the question so everyone can hear it, um, Annika is clearly interested in, in AI and um, the evolution of machines and their abilities and the idea that they may do things better than us eventually. So the question is, um, is there, does she think there will be time that machines can make art? They already are. Uh, my days as an artist are numbered. Um, Google Brain makes paintings and they're not horrible. <laughs> they're not horrible. In fact, I think that there are Silicon Valley collectors who are collecting uh, AI-made um, art. Computational creativity is a very legitimate real thing. It's, 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 it's composing music, it's making paintings. Um, yes, it's here. It's definitely here. Uh, yes. Categorize. Yeah. Um, I think I, I think that's a good question. Um, ephemerality uh, is. It, I mean, I think that that's why I want to talk about these things uh, in terms of you know um, this kind of sensorium that kind of can slip away and not be archived necessarily and not be sort of, you know, uh, as you said, hoarded into some sort of data mapping or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you, that, that we have to still want to value 
this, um, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. I think art is a very good realm for embracing the ephemeral, for embracing um, that which is really, you know, a moment and not intended to sort of survive forever. Um, and I don't know, I think that my work has always sort of addressed that in terms of like, you know, having this kind of resistance that art should exist forever and that it should outlive us humans long after we're gone. I think that, um, uh, but I think that, you know, um, one way is to just sort of, you know, continue to appreciate and uh, create that kind of work. Uh, but in terms of the sort of uh, contrast with the machine, I'm not, I don't know where it's going because everything is going to be stored in a hard drive and all of, you know, our biochemical, uh, our memories, everything, you know, like I was saying that the machine will know us better than ourselves because it will have a very, very intimate knowledge of us and it will have that, you know, stored and will become increasingly more dependent on that, that knowledge, that sort of genetic snapshot that you know um, that that emotional uh, reading it'll like you know the the Alexa Cortana will be our therapist our doctor our you know um, our nutritionist all of it you know so um, right behind Aaron yeah Well, I think that scientists have actually learned by observing nature how to replicate a virus, for example. You know, the E. coli virus, for example, is one of the most important virus, and you just observe it, and you see how it's able to replicate healthy cells and, uh, you know, uh, basically disguise itself as a healthy cell and then terrorize all the others. And when you're able to observe through science, you're able then to learn through nature. Um, and I think that with the rise of, of like scientific you know, knowledge, um, we have become able to do so much technologically. Um, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of like it's an evolutionary curve to advance that way. And there are certainly, you know, uh, legitimate reasons, most of it has been through medical concerns, you know? So the 20th century was very much about 
survival, you know, eradicating black lung and the plague and polio and all of that. Um, what I'm suggesting and saying now is that the 21st century is less about these things because if you look around the globe, we've kind of stabilized a lot of these infectious diseases. We've stabilized, for the most part, you know, uh, like severe poverty and hunger. And so what's happening is really about like augmentation and enhancement and how these sort of, you know, medical technologies and bio technologies has been utilized for enhancement and less about survival, so to speak. Um, and so I think like where evolution is happening, it's getting very murky uh, because, for example, uh, a software actually doesn't need to grow its own body, the body being the hardware. It can design its own hardware. So it doesn't really have any use for it our kind of evolutionary uh, development. And so, and same with how we're, we're sort of, you know, we're skipping along in terms of like synthetic biology, in terms of, you know, uh, genetic engineering. I mean, we've been selectively breeding dogs for thousands and thousands of years. That's also a form of, you know, uh, bioengineering. Um, agriculture is a form of bioengineering. And so, yes, We've been doing this and it's not something terribly new, but I think it's really about a compression in time. And I think that kind of velocity is also incredibly impactful. And I think that uh, we're getting to the point where we're not gonna really recognize uh, the genesis of like species and it's just, it's, we're splintering, you know? And I'm not necessarily holding on to that, you know? Um, I think it's important to talk about it. I think it's important to be aware of it, but I'm not necessarily advocating that we just stay in our uh, sort of like, you know, our lineages, because that also is, is a bit, um, how can I say it? It's a bit, you know, unrealistic as well as inauthentic in the way we think about what natural versus unnatural is. So there's so many questions, and, I, and we try and... Uh, keep it to uh, a few, to six o'clock, but I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna take two more, and if they're quick. So, you know, Aaron, and then Mira, and then we're gonna well, end. I'd love to hear more, but what can you tell us about this? That was an installation um, at the Guggenheim last year in 2017. Um, I took, uh, I took uh, samples. Uh, that I swabbed from uh, Chinatown and Koreatown in Manhattan, and um, I cultured bacteria, and I grew them on uh, 220 agar tiles. Agar is a seaweed substrate that you can grow bacteria on, and um, and then it just proliferated on these sculptures that I also uh, uh, installed into this uh, diorama. And it's like a diorama that you see like at the Natural History Museum. Um, and so this is a living installation and that it was constantly mutating and breathing and uh, shifting and changing from moment to moment so that if you went to see the exhibition inst installation one day and you came back two weeks later, um, you would get a tremendously different kind of, uh, let's say, floral <laughs> development uh, of the installation. 
All right, Mira, last question. So it's actually a, a great way to um, conclude and and, and um, so the comment, I know, I, I will, yes, absolutely. Uh, so Mira's um, comment was uh, basically a call to action, um, not that different actually than Annika's, which is um, a concern that if people who are um, designing the AI and who are programming are in fact privileging the art that the computers are making over um, traditional art that, you know, collectively we value sitting here in a museum that she said we're not doing a, a good job. And she said that art is basically the essence of humanity. Um, and then Don disagreed with her. But I think that is um, an opportunity for dinner conversation, which is, um, Again, this idea of you know what can we do um, when we wake up every day? How do we want to spend our time? What do we value? What do we communicate? What do we argue for? Um, what do we demand? And uh, I think your presentation and the questions are a call to action. And I'm glad you guys are all here. And I hope you'll talk about it over dinner and decide what humanity is and what we value and how art has a role in that. So thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you.